Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through 2 Peter. God is expressing himself so that we can understand who he is and how he came to rescue us from a fallen world to redeem us from our sin. He loved us so much he sent Jesus to die on a cross and he preserves all of that for us through the pages of the Bible. Genesis to Revelation, it's all about Jesus. Old Testament, New Testament, it's all about Jesus so that we might understand the plan for mankind that God had in mind for us to redeem us from our sins. God desires for no one to perish. As you listen to today's message from Pastor Gary, he teaches you about the love that God has for his creation. Do you realize that all of creation moans for the return of the Lord? Creation cries out for redemption and restoration. Pastor Gary explains that in Jesus there is redemption, restoration, healing, and wholeness. God loves his creation so much that He sent Jesus to save it. He is the way, the truth, the life, and the answer for all of creation's problems. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of 2 Peter chapter 1 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. I mean, I I want always to be in a learning mode of learning new things and how the Lord can show me new things through Scripture that maybe I've read that passage, you know, a hundred times, but then He shows me something new that is, you know, fresh and applicable for my life. But there's something to be said about not growing weary with some of the familiar truths about just being reminded of things that maybe you've heard a million times, but it's good just to be reminded again and again and again. The foundational truths of of our faith are worth remembering, being reminded of. Uh, It shouldn't grow old to be reminded of some of those familiar things. This is what Peter is saying. I remember uh, several years ago when we were in the old building, I had a a man come up to me and uh, he had formerly played in college for Coach John Wooden at UCLA. And John Wooden, I've mentioned him a few different times over the course of of, uh, of teaching because I, I just he was an exemplary guy with um, not just a, not just professionally but as a believer he was like one of the uh, winningest if that's a word coaches in uh, NCAA history I think ten championships he he took for UCLA but anyway this guy comes up to me and he was talking to me about what it was like to play for Coach Wooden and he was telling me some stories and he gave, actually gave me a book that Coach Wooden had signed. Um, 
And the only coach died only a few years ago. He was like 99 years of age. And so this guy was telling me, he says, you know what Coach Wooden would do every time basketball season would start? He, he said he would take us all into the locker room and he would make us take off our shoes and our socks. And he would sit around in a circle with us himself. He'd sit in a chair and he'd take off his own socks and his own shoes. And he said, Coach Wooden had the gnarliest looking toes. They were all fungus toenails. They looked like, you know, Ruffles potato chips. He goes, it was just, it was just, oh. anyway, we'll have donuts later. You can think about that. But he said, it was just awful. It was just nasty. And he says, but here he, here he would sit among us and he would take off his shoes and his socks and he would say, all right, now boys, I'm going to teach you how to put on your socks. He says, because if you, if you don't know how to put on your socks properly, you're going to get blisters. And if you get blisters, you're not going to run. And if you don't run, you're not going to score. And if you don't score, we're not going to win championships. And every year, he would start the season that way. I'm going to show you how to put on your socks. Now, I personally, to this day, don't know that there's a wrong way to put on a sock. I mean, if somebody were to ask me, do you know the right way to put on? I'd be like, I just slipped my foot into it. I didn't know there was a right way or a wrong way. But apparently there is. But Coach Wooden's premise was, I need to teach you the fundamentals. Before we even talk about the game, we're going to talk about some basic fundamentals so that we can all understand and be reminded of some of those foundational things. That's kind of what Peter's saying here. He's like, you might have heard this a million times. You might know how to put on your, your socks, so to speak. But Peter's like, I'm going to remind you of these things. And even after I'm dead, we're going to be reminded of these things over and over again because there's no substitute for the foundational truths. Don't get weary of them. They're important foundational things for our spiritual lives. So he says, I'm not going to be negligent to remind you always of these things. And I like the way he refers to the fact in verse 10, uh, sorry, verse 13, and again in verse 14, about living in a tent. That's the word that he uses there. He says in verse 13, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent to stir you up, to remind you of these things. And again, he uses the word in verse 14, knowing that surely I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. And of course, he's using the word tent as an analogy to his body. And he's not the only one. In fact, you don't need to turn there if you want to, you can, but I'll just read from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul used the same terminology to describe our bodies. Uh, In 2 Corinthians 5 verses uh, 1 through 8, this is what Paul wrote. He says, for we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. And IV says by immortality. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So both Paul and Peter use this terminology about how our bodies are like a tent. And one day we're going to fold up the tent and we're going to get 
a permanent glorified body when we are with the Lord. But for the time being, our bodies are like a tent. And I like this analogy. The older I get, the more I can appreciate this analogy. Right, when you're really young, you, you, you read this, you go, tent, you know, my life is like a tent. Then the older you get, you realize, eh, like a tent, it gets a little musty. It sags a little. When it rains, like on a day like today, it leaks, you know? And so our bodies are, they're temporal, they're fragile. Okay, our bodies are temporal. We, you know, unless the Lord returns and raptures us, we're all going to experience death. There's going to be a physical death. And our body is going to return to dust from which it was made. Because our bodies are temporal. They, they don't live forever. Everybody, everybody's trying to treat it like, like they do a tent. You know, I, I like to camp. And you know how it is when you, when you camp, and even if it doesn't rain, because of the dew during the, the, the nighttime, when you get up in the morning, your tent is sagging. So you have to go back out, and you have to stretch the lines to make your tent tighter, which is what people are doing today. You know, we're just like, well, I need to make my tent a little tighter. And so they nip and they tuck and they spend a lot of money and they can't blink and they're in Botox and all this stuff. And, uh, and okay, fine. I mean, if, if you want to do that, I'm not saying that that's wrong or anything. I'm just saying the analogy works here. Okay. But the reality is the tent eventually is going to fold up, return to dust. We're going to get a glorified body. That'll never perish, never sag, never get hungry, never ache, never, you know, leak, never any of that again. And so he uses this analogy to speak about how temporal our body is and honestly how fragile our body is. Our body gets sick. Now, God has created us with the wonderful capacity for the body to heal itself. That's all God's design. Um, but eventually... You know, so I heard somebody once say, just to simplify life and death, basically you're going to die of the last thing you're sick with. There's just going to be a time when your body won't heal itself anymore. It's fragile. It gets sick. It gets tired. It, um, it gets sleep deprived. It gets a lot of things. And so Peter is talking here about, you know, I'm going to be with the Lord soon. And the tent is going to be rolled up. And Paul there in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, you know, I, I, I want to be with the Lord. It's more necessary for me to remain for now. But he says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That when we experience physical death as a Christian, okay, as much as we fear the unknown, and death, that death experience obviously is an unknown, as Christians, though, we don't fear what happens because we have the confidence in knowing that when this body has run its course and it returns to dust and goes back into the ground, the moment we experience physical death, that moment, that moment, that was that first snap was weak, that moment, <laughs> Paul says to be absent from the body there in 2 Corinthians 5 is to be present with the Lord. You're going to once in a while get some well-intentioned people who are just misguided knocking at your door, and they're going to try to tell you that um, there's such a thing as soul sleep. This is what Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you. And they will tell you that, no, 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 when you die, you go into the grave, and you don't, you don't get resurrected until, until the second coming. And so you're in soul sleep. You're, you're in nothing land. That's not true. 
Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body. The moment you die physically, your spirit separates from your body and goes to be with the Lord as a believer. And so even though we fear the unknown, we should not fear death itself because for the believer, what it means is that we pass from this life into eternity and we are with the Lord forever. And this is the hope of the church, all right? This is the hope of the church. To not just have our sins forgiven so that we might be purified before him in this lifetime, but to have our sins forgiven so that we might be purified before him and then be glorified with him. To spend eternity with him. And Peter knows his time is short here. He says, the Lord has shown me. And he says, but I'm going to be careful Verse 15 again, I'm going to be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Here we are now almost 2,000 years later, and we're being reminded of these things, just as, just as he said. He says in verse 16, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables. The word fable there in the Greek is mythos. We get our English word myth. He said, we we did not follow cunningly devised myths or fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. What's he talking about there? Talk to me. The Mount of Transfiguration. If you remember in your Bibles, and in fact, it's Matthew 17. I'll just uh, read briefly. It's just eight verses. But in Matthew chapter 17, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on a high mountain. It doesn't say specifically which one, but it it may have been uh, Mount Hermon. Uh, We don't know for sure. But in Matthew chapter 17, it says this. I'll read verses one through eight. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. So this, this um, miraculous thing happens where, where the countenance of our Lord uh, changes here before them, and his whole being, not just his countenance, his whole being, he's transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as, as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him, with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. What's Peter trying to do? He's trying to preserve the moment. You ever, you ever been in a situation where you didn't want it to stop? Like, you know, last day of vacation, you're like, ah, I don't, we don't, I don't want to go home. You know, this is a wonderful time. And he's trying to preserve the moment here. He says, maybe we should build some shelters, one for you, one for Elijah, one for Moses. And while he was still speaking, Speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is the Father speaking, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, arise and do not be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And so there's this unique moment in Jesus' ministry where he takes the three of the 12, 
that were somewhat his inner circle. Jesus had a closer relationship with Peter, James, and John. Not that he loved them more or less than the others, but there was, there was an inner circle among the 12. And you see it often. He takes Peter, James, and John aside, and he takes them up to this mountain, and he's transfigured. They get a glimpse of his glory. And they, they see in this uh, modified way just the, 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 magnus, the magnificence of, of our Lord in his glory. And appearing with him are Moses and Elijah. Now, Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets and together it represents the totality of the word of God. You have the law, the prophets, you have, of course, Christ who is not, uh, who, who said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but the law might be fulfilled through me. So, you know, uh, he ushers in grace, thus our new Testament. So you have the, the whole, the whole picture of, of the word of God present there in the transfiguration. Peter now writing here in second Peter says, I was there and I saw this and I can testify as an eyewitness that he was no ordinary human being, you see, because he's recognizing and writing this down as an eyewitness here in, in back in chapter one of second Peter. I'm an eyewitness of these things. I was there when I saw him transfigured on the holy mountain. I saw this with my own eyes. I'm writing this down as a testimony. You know, this is history recorded for us. Historical things are written because people were eyewitnesses of things. And Peter is writing an historical record uh, as an eyewitness of Jesus, of his majesty. And, and that's the word that he uses there at the end of verse 16. He says, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And he said, I, I heard the voice from heaven. I heard God the Father say about Jesus, this is my son, my beloved son, in whom I'm very well pleased. And so, so he, he writes this down as a record, as a testimony. I was there. He's no ordinary man. Uh, this is the Messiah that we have uh, long waited for. And verse 19, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, I was an eyewitness of, and I can, I can testify to the majesty of Jesus. And he said, my eyewitness account here is a confirmation of what the prophets have been saying throughout the Old Testament. There are roughly 323 a little bit more than 300 Old Testament prophecies about the first coming of Christ, okay? And Jesus fulfilled them all. And the prophets were writing about Messiah, about Jesus, so that eventually when Messiah came, that people would recognize, oh yeah, that's, he's the fulfillment of all these different prophets. So Peter is saying here, all the things that the prophets wrote about Jesus, I can confirm, I can testify, because I was a witness of his transfiguration on this mountain. I can testify to his majesty. And he, and he says here about prophecy, he says, I just, I just want to remind everybody, he says, here that no prophecy is verse 20 no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation in other words no true prophet says something because of personal inspiration but a true prophet writes things and says things because he's been inspired by god himself and he says, such is the case of our Old Testament scriptures, because no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, 
For holy men of God spoke as they were moved or carried along, some translations say, by the Holy Spirit. So this is basically just, he's making the point of the inspiration of Scripture. Now, we only have a few minutes left here, so I'm just going to talk about this just really briefly because this is important in terms of the Bible. There there are important things we need to grasp about the, the, the veracity of Scripture. And one of those things is inspiration. What does it mean that the Bible was inspired by the Holy Spirit as men were carried along, as as these prophets were moved to write these things. So here's, here's basically a working definition of inspiration. When we talk about the Bible being inspired, what we mean is inspiration means that God so directed the human writers of Scripture that using their personalities and literary styles, His complete revelation for mankind was recorded. Okay, so it's not this robotic thing where, you know, people were in some kind of a trance and then they were just like writing, you know, in a trance things that God told them. God used human vessels, their personalities, their literary styles, but as he inspired them by his Holy Spirit, they, they would write and communicate the totality of what God wanted to get across. And, and so it wasn't this rote you know, robotic thing, inspiration. When we say inspiration, we, we don't mean it in the same way that somebody might say that Shakespeare was inspired to write a play. We don't, we don't mean it like that. Or, 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 I don't know if you've been hearing lately, Kanye West inspired to write music. I mean, that guy seems to have had an encounter with Jesus, so pray for that man. But when we talk about somebody inspired to write a song or somebody inspired to write a play or a book, we don't mean it in the same way. That's, that's human inspiration, okay? When we say the Bible is inspired, we mean much more than that. We mean that God is the source of the Bible and that he worked through human authors to bring forth the specific words of what they, the writers, originally wrote. So they're expressing in their own style and personalities the words that God wants to get across. So inspiration is basically God's revelation expressed through people who were vessels of his thoughts and intentions. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. In the NIV, it says that all Scripture is God-breathed. And I, I like that. It's the Greek word theonoustos. It's literally God so directed and breathed the Holy Spirit to move people to write Scripture. So when we talk about our Bibles... These are not just, you know, good old stories that people decided on their own, I'm going to jot a few things down. These are, these are people who were vessels God used to inspire them to communicate His thoughts, His intentions, His words, and which is the reason why Peter earlier there said, this is not fables. These things aren't fables. They're not mythos. It's not myths. This is the Word of God inspired by the Spirit of God, which, which, is why, you know, which is why we place a high emphasis on the Bible around here. Because we're, we're not talking about a book that is just compiled by basically 40 different authors who just decided over the course of 1,600 years to, to jot down some historical things. When we talk about the Bible and we talk about the inspiration of Scripture, we're talking about what Peter's saying here, that God so moved people to write down exactly what God wanted to communicate to the world. Why? Because this is his love letter to mankind. 
And God is expressing himself so that we can understand who he is and how he came to rescue us from a fallen world, to redeem us from our sin. He loved us so much he sent Jesus to die on a cross. And he preserves all of that for us through the pages of the Bible. Genesis to Revelation, it's all about Jesus. Old Testament, New Testament, it's all about Jesus so that we might understand the plan for mankind that God had in mind for us to redeem us from our sins. Amen? Amen. You've been listening to Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Pastor Gary opened up the book of 2 Peter for us today. When it comes to life in Christ, who better to teach us than the disciple Peter? We can all relate to Peter at one time or another. He was very human, and yet God used him in mighty ways. In 2 Peter 1, 5-8, Peter shows us how to be effective and fruitful. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. These verses are so packed with wisdom, they're worth remembering. Those verses were 2 Peter 1, 5 through 8, if you want to revisit them. And if you want to revisit today's message, head over to cornerstoneconnection.cc. You'll find archived messages and a link to our mobile app there. You can also subscribe to our podcast so you won't miss a message from Pastor Gary. Well, we're coming to the end of our time for today. We will be back, and we hope you come back too with the next Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know